And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five, Welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. If this is your first time here, I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and it's time to pinch yourself, because Al Horner picked top five unraveling realities as his topic. Realities conjured by aliens, artificial intelligence, psychological trauma, the supernatural, they're all on the table, and our lists are really, they're, they're really good, so I'm excited to get to that. I'm going to keep the intro short today because Al and I ran a, a little bit long, but look, he's one of the nicest people that I've ever had on the podcast. I had a great time talking with him and uh, I wasn't going to cut it off. And you should really go listen to his his podcast, Script Apart, because he has guests on his show that people like me only dream of getting behind a mic. Now, last time I talked at you was with Kenny Nybart from Podcasts Like It's 1999, and we talked top five film twins, and Kenny it appears we missed a few. Pete from the middle-class film class said Tom Hardy as Reggie and Ronnie Cray in 2015's Legend. Your next favorite movie podcast said Blood Rage. Ah, oh, I'm kicking myself for leaving Blood Rage off the list. I totally forgot about a great pick. A Thanksgiving Day tradition. And Steve rails back in Scissors. Absolutely no one said Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito in the Stone Cold Classic Twins from 1988. All right, I uh, got to get to a couple of the things I've been watching. And by the way, I'm just going to say this. Most of the time, I watch more than two movies every two weeks. So if you want to see more reviews in written form, reviews that wouldn't make the show, head to force5podcast.com. And right now, you can check out my reviews for the 2022 films Jackass Forever and All the Old Knives there. So head to force5podcast.com if you want more of my reviews. All right, I got uh, two movies that are currently in theaters, and they're going to be spoiler-free reviews. So if you haven't seen these, don't worry. I'm just going to give some overall general thoughts. I'm going to start with X. Farmer's Daughter, take one. I need to be famous, Wayne. All the best people are. There ain't nobody else out there like you. You know why? Why? Because you got that X factor. Our days of struggling may soon be over. Hollywood, here we come. I just want to. So this is it. Our own studio backlog. What do you You're looking for a place to stay? Oh, yes, sir. That's one ugly song, bitch. It's 1979. A group of people rent a side house on a farm on the outskirts of Houston with the intent of filming an independent pornographic movie. But when one of the elderly hosts catches them in the act, the crew finds themselves in a world of pain. Ty West is a really interesting filmmaker. He jumped onto the horror movie scene in 2009 with The House of the Devil and The Innkeepers in 2011 and then just kind of left mainstream big screen horror for a while. He directed some television, he directed an underrated western in 2016, but when I heard he was coming back to his horror roots, I was excited. X does a lot of things right. First, it gives us time to get to know the protagonists. It shows us different sides to them. The filmmaker isn't just a filmmaker, he's also an insecure, protective kid. The producer isn't just a producer, he's a businessman with big dreams and very liberal ideas. 
The porn actors are all more than just that. They all have legitimate hopes and dreams, which we get to find out. We get to know all of this because Ty gives us the chance to just kind of hang out with him. The first kill in this movie doesn't even happen until just after an hour in, and because of that, you really do care about the film crew. There are a few standouts in the cast, most surprising to me of which was rapper Kid Cudi. He plays Jackson, a porn actor who did tours in Nam. He's just a guy who believes he was born for the screen, but he's always ready to help out a fellow Marine. There's a scene in which he opens the front door while naked at night, and you just see his giant floppy dingus swinging in the wind in, the, in these shadows. It's brilliant! The ladies in the film are all fantastic, but I'll be damned if I didn't leave this film with a huge crush on Brittany Snow, who plays Bobby Lynn. She's like the motherly figure of the bunch, someone who just completely understands the business she's in and really treats it as a job. The villains are really interesting as well, and I'm not going to reveal who the villains are or what their motivation is, but it seemed oddly sweet at first. And that feeling, of course, fades pretty fast because the antagonists are unbelievably screwed up. The overall theme of X seems to be the juxtaposition of sexuality in film versus what it looks like in real life. The beautiful bodies we see in the act of passion live off screen as well, in a world where there are jealous benefactors and at some point, the beauty and even the ability to have sex fades. I also like that the villains weren't unstoppable killing machines and the way some of them are dealt with is riotous. It is just so much fun. The filmmaking here is top notch, of course. From the very first shot we see this, it's framed by a square window as we see what appears to be a peaceful farmhouse. But as we pull in through the window, we begin to see things that we couldn't at first. Police cars parked on both the right and left, bodies, blood. It's a really effective way to get us right into the action and the craft remains exquisite throughout. The score by Tyler Bates and Chelsea Wolfe is unnerving and only adds to the tension. Just great all around. X checks all kinds of boxes I'm looking for in a horror film. It's horny, it's gory, it's smart, it's got interesting protagonists, and it's got equally interesting antagonists. If you're a student of horror films, Ty West is the class president. And you'll definitely be rewarded for your studies, as this feels like a spiritual sequel to Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the films inspired by it. Right now, this might be my favorite film of 2022, and if you like horror films, you gotta see this. It is extremely recommended. The other film I saw this week is the new Michael Bay film, Ambulance. I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry that I brought you into this. I just wanted things to be the way they used to be. That's my brother, Will. I could use some help. My wife needs this surgery. This is real life. How's that right? You put your life down on the line for this country? You leave your family, your home? How much do you need? 231. How about more? 32 million. And I need an extra man. I came to you for a loan. Look, have I ever gotten you anything that I couldn't get you out of? It's time for you to do something for your family. What can I do you for, officer? We're just doing a transfer in the back. I'll let uh, you in in 20 minutes. Uh, I could just get it done real quick because I'm on the clock. Promise not to rob the place. Oh. <laughs> Seriously, because that would be bad for my job. <laughs> I promise. All right, okay. All right. All okay. right. Come All on. Right. <laughs> okay. In this remake of the 2005 Danish film of the same name, two brothers find themselves trapped in an ambulance in a high-speed pursuit after a bank robbery gone wrong. A tough EMT and a cop who's bleeding out are also on board. 
I have not seen the original film from 2005, so your enjoyment may hinge on that. If you're a big fan, I don't know. I don't know how different the scripts or the movies are. So I'm just going to start with that. Now, I used to play a lot of Grand Theft Auto V, and when a friend of the show, Moose, and I would get together, we'd pass the controller back and forth, looking to see who could survive the longest with a five-star wanted level. You basically cause as much carnage as possible and then play a game of trying to stay alive while law enforcement tried everything that they could to put you in a wooden box. Ambulance is like the film version of that. It's an extremely dumb, goofy, corny, two-hour adrenaline shot featuring frenetic camera work, a boatload of wrecked vehicles, and Jake Gyllenhaal absolutely chewing scenery. I love, love a good car chase. During The Rock, for example, there's a car chase, a great car chase between a Lamborghini and a Hummer, and this right here feels like two hours of that. There's also an interesting dynamic inside of the ambulance. Gyllenhaal plays Danny, a man who has apparently robbed 38 banks in the last decade. I mean, shouldn't one or two banks be enough? That's like four banks a year this dude's hidden. His brother Will is driving the rig. He's an ex-military man who's having trouble with his insurance company, and he finds himself along for the ride with the promise of a big payday that would surely get his wife an operation that she needs. Yes, it's that kind of movie. Also in the cab are Cam, an EMT who treats her job as just that, a job. She doesn't care about the patients after they're out of her care, but she's going to do her best to keep them alive from point A to the emergency room. And finally, there's Zach, a rookie cop who's bleeding out from multiple gunshot wounds, a situation that has everyone in the vehicle working together so that he doesn't die on their watch. As they speed through L.A. looking for a way out of this jam, Captain Monroe, a special investigation unit leader and an FBI agent, are using every tactic in the book to slow them down and bring the brothers to justice without risking the officer's life. The film rarely gives you a chance to breathe. It's full speed ahead from the beginning of the film to the end. Gyllenhaal is really fun as Danny, a supposed criminal mastermind who knows the inner workings of the FBI, but honestly never actually seems that smart. He consistently makes the wrong decisions and is continuously bailed out by others. Danny's always very wide-eyed and high-strung, leading to some hilarious moments. I mean, there are some one-liners in this movie during the ride that got big laughs out of me and my wife. Yaha Abdul-Mateen II plays his brother Will, the sympathetic character on board, and I'm putting that in quotes. I think the goal was to make us root for this dude, but to be honest, he was really stupid and deserved to go to jail for a thousand years. I was kind of rooting for Danny more so than I was Will. He makes some really dumb decisions in the name of honor, but dude, you're in a massive car chase that has definitely taken the lives of other people at this point. You cannot be sympathetic. They should have just made both brothers kind of evil from the start and made Isa Gonzalez's character the hero, but I'm not a screen... I'm, I want to be screenwriter. I'm not a real screenwriter. That's just my opinion. Uh, these guys also apparently live in the shadow of their father, a bank robbery legend who was just as brutal as he was greedy. The film is shot well and uses a ton of drone shots. I mean, an exhausting amount of drone shots. It feels like we see the same drone goes up the side of a building, does a spin, and arcs right back down to see the chase shot like 10 or 11 times, but a lot of the shots do feel kinetic and fun. I'm stunned that this movie only had a $40 million budget. It looks way more expensive than that. In addition to tons of cars getting absolutely decimated, we get explosions, shootouts, helicopters, C4, a grenade launcher, and a bank robbery that's pretty well done. 
I think the initial robbery could have been edited a bit differently to give us a better sense of the space because, I mean, once shit goes down, it's tough to understand where people were in relation to each other, but it was really exciting. I'll admit, I'm one of these people, one of the few I think at this point, who still gets really excited for Michael Bay movies. And I wouldn't say that I'm a, a stan by any means. He's made a lot of films that I don't like, but he really does make movies designed to entertain the widest possible audience. In terms of action films, I've always thought that The Rock and Bad Boys were his best, both of which are referenced in this film, by the way. And while Ambulance doesn't top those for me, it's still really entertaining. It's, it's just a good time at the movies. I think there's two kinds of people who are going to like this. The first are people who don't care if movies are dumb as long as they're entertaining. Because, look, if you're going in this looking in the context of realism and plot holes, you're going to have a field day. And the second are people who love Jake Gyllenhaal because he is on fire. I must say, I am really looking forward to the Blu-ray on this because I am anticipating some typical Bay special features that explain how they did some of the things they did. But yeah, it's a good time at the movies. If you got a couple hours free, go see Ambulance on the big screen with a great sound system. I don't think you'll regret it. We're going to get Al Horner in here in just a moment. But first, we got to talk about today's sponsor, Jerry's Stereo Shop. Now carrying the newest model in home audio equipment, the TK421 Stereo Modification. The TK421 provides all the bass you want, no, need, in a system. It's hi-fi, high fidelity, which means it's the highest quality fidelity. Two very important things to have in a stereo system. The TK421 kicks things up another three or four quads per channel, but that doesn't really concern you, that's technical talk. Not convinced? You know what you need? You need to test drive. It's one thing to hear it from the Force 5 podcast. It's another hearing it straight from the TK421. Head into Jerry's Stereo Shop and talk to either Jerry or Buck for a demo that'll blow your mind. And while you're there, tell them Force 5 sent you. Tell them F5 sent me here, Jerry, for a free demo tape featuring Dirk Diggler's newest song, The Touch. The perfect song to break in your new stereo system. Welcome back to Force 5. Tonight, I'm excited. I'm joined by Al Horner. He's a journalist and editor whose work has been published in publications like British GQ, The Guardian, The Independent, Vice, Time Magazine. He's also got a few podcasts now. We've got Script Apart, which is where I learned of your work, of course, and the newer How I Write. Al Horner, how are you? Jason, so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing good. It's a bit early my time, and I'm very jet-lagged. I just got back from your neck of the woods, and uh, yeah, timeline, uh, the way the time zones have worked, you're up at 11 p.m., I'm up at 7 a.m. We've both sacrificed a lot <laughs> of sleep to make this happen, but I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we've been trying to trying to work out a time for a little while now. I'm super happy that we finally made it work, and yeah, I guess I should say this is the first time I've ever said good morning to a guest. <laughs> Hopefully you've had some coffee. Maybe you've had some breakfast. I don't know. I don't know your routine. Dude, I've got like a cafeteria here the size of like a small space station. And if you hear like a kind of glugging noise throughout the episode, that's me kind of just, you know, it's it's the, my coffee situation right now is like the next best thing to having it like on some sort of intravenous drip placed directly into my veins. I'm, I'm, I'm good and caffeinated. We're all good. <laughs> Love it. 
Uh, well, you'll hear Al getting uh, more and more awake as as the show goes on. Uh, I'm going to try and like stimulate your brain here a little bit. Now, I don't want to talk about music too much, but I, I got to mention you're obviously a hip hop fan. I've seen your interviews with people like Kendrick Lamar, Run the Jewels, Tyler, the creator. Uh, first off, is it true that you played paintball with Tyler, the creator? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good few years ago now. He, uh, I guess like for someone like Tyler, if he's gonna have to be interviewed by, by a journalist, then, um, he'd like to inflict some pain on them. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that was his kind of bargain. And, uh, yeah, that was a fun, painful day. I hadn't done paintballing before and I haven't done it since. So that's a kind of one-off experience, but uh, it was fun. Well, you've been shot once, and you were shot by Tyler, the creator. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, what are you listening to these days? What's uh, what's in the? Well, I was going to say iPod, but that would really date me. What's <laughs> uh, uh, what's streaming these days that you're listening to? Oh, you know, I kind of go through all these sort of phases, and um, well, the thing is, because it's uh, because on top of the journalism work I do as people may have guessed through listening to my podcasts, I've also kind of moved into screenwriting and um, there's like often my music tastes are kind of a little bit beholden to what I'm writing at the time because I'm quite dependent on music to kind of put me in a mode, put, put, put me in a mood, kind of, uh, kind of conjure an atmosphere that's going to contribute to what I'm writing. So um, just right now, as, as a result, more than anything of like some of the projects I'm working on, there's like a folk artist called um, Andy Schauf who, I'm just absolutely mainlining at the minute. And uh, it's a lot of stuff in that kind of area. But yeah, traditionally, like hip hop has been my thing. And uh, yeah, I, like I, I say all this stuff about Andy Schauf and the kind of like folk stuff that I'm kind of listening to at the minute. But as soon as that new Kendrick drops this year, I'm definitely going to be uh, <laughs> just dropping everything and sort of having that on repeat for, for a good couple of weeks, good couple of months. That's interesting. Yeah, I do the same thing when I'm writing. And currently today I had list listening to the uh, 1984 rock playlist of like whatever came out in 1984, because that's when mine is set. So, <laughs> so I'm right what, there with you. What would that be then? What was 84 like for rock? Was that like Bon Jovi and stuff like that? Yeah, there's some Bon Jovi. There's Corey Hart. There's a lot of pop crossover. There's a lot of the like hair metal stuff starting to starting to make its way in. Just a lot of good stuff. But uh, I'm writing kind of like a weird exploitation movie that, that uh, deserves that kind of a soundtrack while I'm writing it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, now I'm really disappointed that we're not doing this over video because I'm just assuming that you have like hair metal kind of a, a, a hair metal look right now and that you've, you've leaned <laughs> into it. Let's just say that's true. We'll just say that's true. And that will be your vision of me. Excellent. Now, Al, we're talking a little bit about screenwriting here. Let's talk about script apart. For those listeners who might be hearing about your podcast for the very first time, what's the concept of your show? So Script Apart is a podcast in which great screenwriters revisit their first drafts of beloved movies. Um, so we launched in June 2020. And since then, we've had everyone from Aaron Sorkin and Barry Jenkins to James Gunn and Edgar Wright on the show, as well as the writers of classics like Back to the Future, Die Hard, uh, Brokeback Mountain, Pixar's Inside Out, Terminator 2. Um, each episode is kind of a big, long hour-ish deep dive into, into the kind of film in question and its first draft with the person who wrote it. And uh, yeah, anyone listening to this who's dabbled in screenwriting themselves will know there's usually like, uh, you know, this initial brain splurge of ideas 
when it comes to like <laughs> writing a first draft. Um, there'll be plot holes, there'll be different iterations of characters, alternative endings, and all sorts of kind of wild, frenzied elements that don't end up in the finished movie. So there's a lot to explore, and yeah, Script Apart is basically a show that uh, gives movie fans a kind of little peek behind the curtain of the creation of their favourite movies, and uh, also hopefully gives screenwriters a little lift in their own creative process. Like, it's easy, or certainly for me, when I was kind of embarking upon screenwriting, I found it really easy to assume that all these great screenplays kind of were coming to writers in these bolts of lightning of inspiration from the sky. But um, actually, as it turns out, as you know, most of our guests have kind of attested to, you know, first drafts are typically these big, ugly chunks of marble out of which you then kind of begin chiseling and polishing until you have a great screenplay. So, uh, yeah, that's script apart. Yeah, it's a great show. Uh, you already mentioned some of the greats that have been on there. I found it because I'm a huge Shane Black fan, and you covered one of my top five favorite movies ever, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, on there. So I was super excited to listen to that and uh, just consumed a ton more. You've also got another show right now called How I Write, and that one is more of a an abbreviated version of just like the process of writing and the you know the, the tips and tricks that these amazing screenwriters have how did you how did that one come about it's kind of like a sister show to script apart yeah yeah well one of the kind of bits of feedback that we always have with script apart is like you know a lot, people typically are trying to kind of move into screenwriting you know it's it's such a long journey and it's uh so dependent on you kind of working in your spare time on top of your job kind of thing that I was just hearing a little bit from from listeners that like, ah, oh, you know, I don't always have an hour to listen to these things. And a combination of thinking like, well, what's kind of really digestible, like 15, 20 minute version of this that is, that can kind of, you can stick on in the morning while you make your coffee before the, you then do an hour of writing, before you then go to work. It was kind of born out of a combination of that. And also, I guess like, I was kind of curious, like, you know, storytelling, uh, screenwriting rather is like a storytelling medium, but like most of the podcasts that exist out there, including Script Apart, are kind of, you know, here's an interview and they don't have a storytelling element to it. So I kind of, uh, yeah, was was curious to to see if, if, if I could devise something that is kind of a screenwriting podcast in a storytelling style. So the, the kind of uh, format of it, I suppose, takes you through kind of chronologically almost in a narrative kind of way how a screenwriter typically how like screenwriters um like misha green who wrote lovecraft country how they typically go through uh you know their writing process from you know idea generation to redrafting so we kind of pack all that in in this kind of really fun first person way with lots of music behind it we kind of like go through that whole process in, in about 22 minutes. So um, yeah, it was a bit of an experiment and a bit of a sister show. And yeah, we had had a kind of um, one of our kind of like partners, this screenwriting uh, software company called Art Studio Pro. They had got in touch to see if we wanted to do a sister show. And yeah, it all kind of came out of that really. Nice. Well, I'm loving it. If you, If you're wondering where to start, I think one of the best episodes of that show is the one with Jim Cummings, who I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, yeah. He talks about his writing process. Yeah, he's he's great. And 
he just has some really wise things to say about not only his process, but also just like write what you want to write. And uh, a lot of stuff that he talked about stuck with me, including his quote around something like people in Hollywood are always like, what are the themes? And I'm like, fuck you. It's a dope movie. And that's like <laughs> how I feel when I'm writing something that I know will, you know, like the one I'm writing now is kind of just for fun to get my brain off my last screenplay. And this mm-hmm. one's like, I-, I know it may never get made, but you know what? It's dope, even though it doesn't have any <laughs> any like overarching big themes with the rest of the world. Yeah, it took me a second to realize that Jim was saying and Jim was saying the same thing with slightly more kind of colorful language as like one of my <laughs> all time favorite uh, kind of quotes about writing. Ray Bradbury, um, he he said his he had a post it note on his well not laptop this was pre-laptop, you know, he had a, on his desk, Mm -hmm. like by his kind of writing station, he just had a note that said, just write, don't think, just write. And uh, when asked to explain it, he kind of like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his words now, but like, uh, his explanation was something to the extent of like, your subconscious is a better writer than your conscious could ever be. And like, I think Jim is kind of saying the same thing there, where it's like, if you kind of really get bogged down in sort of like, well, what are the themes? What am I saying? Then, you know, you're going to derail yourself. But if you kind of just, if you just write and trust your kind of like inner brain to, uh, you know, be, be kind of expressing something to be exploring something kind of a little bit bigger than you can comprehend in that moment, then it'll all come together. Just, just, just write it. Great advice from both men, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to ask, because you deal with a lot of screenwriters, who are some of your dream guests? Like, if you could get them on the show, they would be just like a dream come true. Well, one of them I think we're maybe going to talk about in a little bit when we get into the uh, the top five here. So I won't okay. mention them. But uh, yeah, there are a few kind of like white whales that um, yeah persist for me. Like, we're, we're really lucky on Script Apart. We've had like an amazing, amazing array of guests. But um, yeah, there, there are some that I have been working on for a long time. I will continue to be working on. I'm basically like, with a lot of these people, I'm, I'm pretty much like, um, you know, uh, like Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption writing a letter a day <laughs> to get like a library put into the prison. That's me yes. with like Guillermo del Toro. That's me with like a lot of these kind of like, uh, screenwriters who are incredibly formative for me and yeah to, yeah that I would just adore kind of getting the opportunity to welcome onto the show so yeah it's kind of like a lot of the kind of big ones a lot of the kind of like you know they, these won't be sort of surprising names to um to listeners here but like yeah Tarantino Del Toro is another big one for me just because Pan's Labyrinth was a, a real moment for me in terms of like uh realizing what you could do with a screenplay and yeah so those are two big ones off the top of my head solid ones they would be on my top five as well well tonight we're not talking about writing and we're not talking about music we're talking top five unraveling realities which is a really fun topic what was your inspiration out of all the things you could have chosen why go with this um well my kind of coming of age as a film fan prior to uh, Pan's Labyrinth, it, it kind of coincided with this like 
wealth of movies around the late 90s, early 2000s, when everyone was freaking out about Y2K and the millennium bug. <laughs> um, all these kind of, there were all these movies that were kind of preoccupied by the question, what is real? Um, as we kind of, yeah, move towards the new millennium. I was, I was born in 1987, so this was all coinciding with me in my early teens. Yes, I was pretty into new metal at the time. Yes, I was wearing baggy jeans. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was kind of an intense age to be uh, to be spilling out of Basingstoke, Odeon Cinema, wondering, is this car park real? Oh God, am I real? And uh, yeah, freaking out. So um, yeah, cinematically speaking, a lot of movies that kind of came out around this time uh, were really formative. And um, I guess kind of like I've been thinking a lot about them recently because you know, it's interesting to kind of ponder some of the ripples these films might have, like, accidentally helped create. Like, we live in a world today in which, like, people are far more predisposed towards conspiracy theories, in which, like, you know, sure. people are kind of questioning objective reality, but, like, sometimes even outright rejecting it. And, you know, sometimes the people doing that, kind of rejecting objective reality, are, you know, they're using the very language and catchphrases of some of the movies we're going to mention. And that kind of puts like a really interesting, uh, well, kind of depressing, depressing wrinkle in, in the legacy of some of these films. Um, yeah, I mean, so that was kind of the inspiration. I'll caveat before I go on any further that there are going to be many, many, many movies um, among the ones, uh, you know, there are going to be many movies missing from from my list, which is oh, kind yeah. of really far from definitive. I'm not even sure they're the best movies in which kind of reality unravels. There just happens to be like five movies that were really formative for me. So it's probably going to be a, a little bit mainstream, a little bit kind of myopic to American cinema. But uh, yeah, that's just kind of how it shook out for me. Um, I'm, I'm relying on you, Jason, to bring the deep cuts. Um, <laughs> and also I should mention as well, because I figured I'm going to get some emails about this. So my definition, right, of uh, movies in which reality unravels, it kind of has to encompass some kind of transformation. So like, mm -hmm. I love it when it goes through, I love it when we go from a point of normality to a state of like, what the fuck? And, uh, yeah. you know, so, so I was kind of like, do I just get some Lynch in there? But then I was kind of like, Lynch from the, from the offset is kind of like, what the fuck? And I love it when we have that disintegration. That's what I like when things start from a baseline of real and then they become increasingly, there's this slow descent into the unreal. That's what I like. That's a good lead in because I was going to ask you what your like your guidelines that you put in place for yourself were. And yeah, I, I kind of had to put some baseline in place, too. And I guess looking at my list, it is all where reality starts as one way and things go a completely different direction with a topic like this. You can really interpret it many different ways. And like you said, there are going to be a ton that have been left off the list. And I will say that. The five on mine, probably just like you, well, they're definitely not the five best if you're thinking about this topic. And they're probably not even my five favorite, but they're, well, I, I can say at least a couple of them are favorites of mine. But I did want to bring some deep cuts to the table that might complement some of those really obvious choices that uh, people, like the, the first ones that people might think of when we talk about unraveling realities. Al Horner, you ready to get into this list? I'm hyped. Let's do this. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening right now? Huh? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. Words? 
you kick us off here and tell us number five on your list of unraveling realities. Okay, number five for me is The Truman Show. Behind the friendly smile. How are you, Truman? Vital signs are good. <laughs> and the neighborly wave. Good morning! Stand by ring cam. Is he looking at us? I think he knows. The real Truman. A lot of strange things have been happening. Is about to bust out. Who are you? I am the creator. And who am I? You're the star. Jim Carrey. Truman, come back! He's not a performer, he's a prisoner. Christmas! The Truman Show. Rated PG. June 5th, everywhere. This is uh, the genius of, okay, I mentioned earlier that there was a, uh, a part of the inspiration came from, from a movie, for, for Script Apart, came from a movie in which reality unravels. And uh, yeah, the Truman Show was actually kind of the thing that gave me the, the idea for Script Apart, because <laughs> this is a bit of a kind of detour, but um, yeah, one day I kind of, I was searching for the script, and one day I came across like an early draft and in this early draft, you know, uh, it's really, really, really dark. And, uh, you know, at one point, Truman drowns his wife in a bathtub and he kidnaps a baby. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it gets bleak. And, you know, it was only on subsequent drafts that, uh, you know, the film was kind of fine tuned to kind of be the much more kind of uplifting, much more optimistic uh, sort of treatment on the same theme that, uh, that that first draft was exploring. So that was kind of the genesis of Script Apart. So I have a special place in this heart, a special place in my heart for this movie anyways. I have done since I was a kid. And um, yeah, I think the genius of this movie is it's a prison movie. It's a prison breakout movie in which the lead character doesn't know they're imprisoned for most of the film. Um, mm -hmm. So I, th I think it's like a genius piece of cinema. And I think in terms of like that thing we just discussed of like having a normality, a baseline of normality, and then sort of, you know, finding these little frayed threads that the character then sort of begins to pull at, and, you know, things sort of just unspooling from there. It's such a sort of satisfying uh, kind of arc for that character, and it's such a kind of, at first, uh, you know, kind of maddening for him, but the audience obviously, it's a maddening experience for him, but unlike some of the other movies we'll discuss in this list, uh, you know, Truman kind of, uh, the audience knows something that Truman doesn't, so there's an interesting tension there. We're able to see, uh, you know, what's <laughs> what the, the actual kind of reality is for this character who's only able to perceive his reality, um, which is a fake one. So yeah, there's there's all sorts of really interesting kind of dynamics happening in this film. Uh, it foresaw the rise and increasing kind of invasiveness uh, of reality TV, of social media. And it absolutely broke my brain as a kid. I remember like uh, <laughs> renting it from a local video store with my mum and dad. And um, I was fully expecting another Jim Carrey caper. And instead, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> sp spent the next few weeks kind of like sat in PE classes, kind of like just freaking out and uh, yeah, unsure if I was in a reality TV show, like what's going on. Yeah. So it really kind of wormed its way into my brain at a really formative age. And yeah, I've got a lot of love for this movie. It's a fantastic film. And it, I haven't seen it in a, in a while, but I remember the last time I watched it, I was impressed with how many little details there were. 
as you understand, like you, you watch it once and you're kind of floored and then you watch a second time and there's so many things that you pick up that you wouldn't have picked up before. You can do a watch of this movie where you're essentially just looking out for the cameras that exist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> within uh, Truman's, uh, I forget the name of the town, but yeah, you can do, there are so many things that are rewarding on repeat views, including, yeah, you can just, the amount, of, once you know where the movie is going, you can uh, watch back and see it from a number of different perspectives. You can watch back and see like all the different little cameras and stuff that are hidden around. You can look back and see like the way that kind of product placement is kind of worked into Truman's life without him noticing mm-hmm. and without us noticing on first watch when, um, you know, it's not revealed to us straight away. So yeah, repeat views. It's, it's a really rewatchable film. Yeah. It's got really great performances. Jim Carrey's amazing in it. And, um, uh, what's his name? Noah, Noah Emmerich is in here as his best friend. He's really great. There's the, there's the scene where he's trying to convince Truman that he's not in on it. And it's just such a fantastic scene between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you brought up reality TV because, you know, we watched the Truman show in 1998 and it's like, Oh my God, that's terrible. And now people go on these shows for fun <laughs> just to like <laughs> basically try to be uh, Truman. And it's like, Oh man, what are you doing people? <laughs> yeah. In fairness though, you know, my, personal relationship with the movie like I went through that whole I had the exact same relationship uh the, the exact same response that you did and now I'm kind of like as the as the world gets increasingly darker I'm like maybe it actually sound maybe that kind of blissful kind of containment in some sort of domed reality where everything's kind of fine where do I sign well if they ever reboot the real world you're first on the list <laughs> sounds good sounds good Well, it's great that you brought up The Truman Show because that is a perfect segue into my number five. Uh, And like I said, I love The Truman Show. I wanted to go with kind of a deeper cut in that same reality. And my first thought was Ed TV with uh, Matthew McConaughey, but it's been a long time since I've seen that. So I didn't want to go with that. But I went with an earlier one, and I think that this movie may have influenced The Truman Show in some form. It's called The Iceman from 1984. This is worth much more than any one man. His origin is a mystery. All systems go. His existence is a miracle. That's brain activity. He survived 40,000 years in a world of ice and snow. He's alive. But how long can he last in a world of modern man? What's happened here is nothing compared to what's going to happen to him out there. Timothy Hutton, Iceman, rated PG. Starts Friday at selected theaters. Check newspapers for location and showtimes. So Iceman is about this anthropologist named Stanley Shepard, played by Timothy Hutton. And he's brought to this Arctic base. And there were these explorers that discovered the body of a prehistoric man who's been frozen for what they estimate to be 40,000 years. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. It's got Danny Glover in, right? Yeah, yeah. Young (laughs) Danny Glover role. Yep, Love it. So they thaw the body out and there's some there's some back and forth about thawing the body out. But finally, they they get him thawed and they hook him up to machines and they bring him back to life and they place him in this artificial simulated environment so that they can study him. Essentially, the the dome, this biodome. And um, 
the, the main story here really is about the differences in opinion when it comes to how the subject should be treated. So the anthropologist uh, Shepard and the other scientists have differing views. Like Timothy Hutton believes that he should show humanity towards the caveman whom they named Charlie based on the, the sounds and grunts that he makes. Whereas the other scientists are really interested in how they can use the caveman's DNA to for their own their own scientist research. So so this is like the caveman in the Truman Show aspect because they're just watching him. Now it doesn't take him as long as Truman to figure out that things aren't quite right because you can't simulate forty thousand years ago. So he wakes up and. He instantly knows things aren't right, but he doesn't know exactly the extent of it. From that point, we get a really sweet, like, friend type of movie between Timothy Hutton's character and this caveman played by, um, what's his name? John Lone, I think, is the guy that plays the caveman. He does a really good job. It's one of these things where he's kind of figuring out the world, but he's also seeing weird things he's never seen before. So for example, like he sees a helicopter for the first time fly over the dome and he thinks that it's this mythical bird sent down by the gods. Uh, so there's, there's that kind of stuff, but it's not ever played for comedy. It's more just kind of thinking how these folks would think. There's also a really great scene in which we see the power of music as a communication tool as Timothy Hutton's character starts singing Neil Young's Heart of Gold. And the prehistoric man kind of starts singing along. It's a little predictable in the themes here. It's like a, one of those classic examples of the scientist thinks that he's going to teach the caveman about life, but the caveman ends up <laughs> teaching him more about humanity than he would have thought, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But um, the ending isn't, isn't great. Uh, I, I really feel like it feels, it doesn't stick the landing, but the first you know, 90% of this movie is really good and it's really sweet. And they both have to make some choices near the end that are really tough as he befriends this guy and realizes, you know what, maybe we shouldn't confine him to this bubble because the scientists are going to do terrible things to him. Mm -hmm. So if you like the Truman Show and you want something a little bit different, but in that same vein, I think Iceman from 1984 is a good way to go. And uh, Kino put out a big or not, not a big Blu-ray release, of it, but a good Blu-ray release of it. Um, so you can pick that up there. Yeah, I mean, two things from me. Number one, 1984, again, coming through, you know, not just hair <laughs> metal. We, um, and also, uh, I guess, like, one thing that's it's been a while since I've watched this, but, um, yeah, kind of another thing that kind of came to mind there as you were sort of talking about sort of, I, I guess the people who kind of, put the caveman in that position and have like have altered his reality is another kind of really interesting sort of thread in these films is you know the the people or persons that have kind of um you know that are, that are in charge of kind of containing these these characters in these realities that, that aren't quite real and that are going to unravel like and the degree to which it's exploitative you know what they're getting out of it. The the degree to which it's ethical to uh to contain and to manipulate these characters. So yeah, obviously that was a big part of the Truman Show, and I think it's obviously a theme in this as well. Yeah, and the Truman Show was more for entertainment, and here it's for scientific gain. But all the same, the ethics come into play, and it will definitely make you think about it. 
All right, number four for you, Al. This is kind of, I don't know if I'm cheating here, but I'm going to throw these two films together anyways. All right, let's do it. So number four for me is Abre Los Ojos and Vanilla Sky. Because, you know, you can't, to me, the two things are pretty, uh, you know, <laughs> they're linked in a way that I can't kind of uh, extract. <laughs> yeah, direct remakes. Yeah. I present when I open it up. I already know what's inside. David Ames' perfect life. When will you call me? Is about to become. What do I owe this pleasure? The pleasure of Sophia. When did you stop caring, David? A nightmare. You've been charged with murder. Julie is alive. Someone did this to me. Now, his search for the truth. How much did they pay you? Is going to take him farther than he ever imagined. The Metal Sky, rated R, starts Friday, December 14th. So, this for me was. Um... I remember sort of discovering it late at night on TV, the, the sort of Spanish original. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I mean, I'm trying to think how the how to best describe it. In fact, I'm just gonna assume everyone's seen it. Like Vanilla Sky was really that was that was pretty big, right? So people yeah, at least two thousand one, you know, Tom Cruise movie. Exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, the uh, this was, but the the kind of original was very much my introduction to Spanish cinema, which then led to kind of a bigger kind of, uh, you know, thirst for kind of world cinema, I guess, like, uh, and the sort of different perspectives that can offer. I remember my mom and dad had just like, uh, they just bought a new TV. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't want to, they basically had like moved their old TV upstairs um, in our house. And they were like, don't watch the TV after 9pm. And I was like, cool you got it no worries don't worry about that <laughs> and then of course like i was watching tv after 9 p.m every day and um yeah so this is one of these these films that i kind of came across uh you know in one of those kind of like subtitles on sound all the way down kind of just like scanning the channels late at night kind of thing and uh yeah i was pretty young and it just it just absolutely blew my mind and um it's to me it's like a it's such a kind of good uh it, it's it's an it's a reality unraveling movie that's like got so much to say about vanity that's got so much to say about like uh you know sort of how we move through the world and sort of like the the arrogance that can kind of like cause our downfalls um yeah it's, it's there's kind of like a fable like quality to it but this sort of the mystery of it that propels it as you kind of want to find out why things aren't quite right it's just so smart so clever and really kind of wraps you up and then of course as we say you know that there was this kind of u.s remake and it was uh yeah it was cameron crowe and um you know typically especially around this period where there was a real reluctance um on you know I, i don't know whether it was a gatekeepers thing or whether it was an audience driven thing but you know, this kind of like early noughties uh, kind of era, anything that was popular abroad, rather than kind of import it and put that directly in front of audiences today, as you know, you would do, for example, with Squid Game, and, and that could be popular in its own right without needing to be remade. Everything from this era was just kind of like imported, given the US remake treatment, and would kind of often sort of become its own thing in a way that sort of diluted a lot of the magic of the original. But I guess like, you know, Cameron, the US treatment of it, like it doesn't necessarily improve on the original, but like some of the 
elements of, uh, of of the original movie just kind of shine when transposed into the kind of very plasticky American socialite scene in which kind of the movie set. Tom Cruise is operating at maximum smarminess and leaning into a side of his kind of the, the public perception of him. I think it's like a fantastic performance from him. Um, Penelope Cruz plays the same character in both both versions, and she's brilliant yeah. in both. You know, um, so yeah, it's to me like the, the sort of slow descent as you kind of uh, you know you have essentially this character. I don't want to spoil it in case anyone hasn't seen it, but like you essentially have a character who you know lives this kind of playboy lifestyle. Uh, sort of tragedy kind of befalls him. And then, or, you know, he brings it upon himself, some would say. And then this kind of nightmarish situation that he's in, like, sort of resolves itself with sudden ease. And he seems to have, like, yeah, he, he the sort of arc of the movie and its kind of manipulation is of you as an audience as kind of this character essentially gets what he wants, but something doesn't feel right. And he has to solve the mystery of, what's that thing what's that itch that like he can't help scratching like that something's awry here it's just so masterfully done and uh yeah i, I kind of think about this movie a lot like the ending and the choice that it presents the character and the sort of impossibility of answering that question as an audience member like that's something that you know i really aspire to in my own screenwriting and uh i just think it's brilliantly done it's been a really long time since I've seen Vanilla Sky. I remember really liking it. And I will confess, I've not seen the Spanish language version of it. But uh, just the American version. I remember wanting to go see it because I liked Jason Lee at the time. This is Jason oh, Lee. Yeah, like, yeah. He's, got, he's, he's one of Tom Cruise. I think he's Tom Cruise's best friend in the movie. It's uh, pre his descent into the Chipmunks movies. And like the absolutely awful stealing Harvard. And he was in a lot of these really good movies. Like he had a bit part in enemy of the state and Carrie was in vanilla sky. So I went to go see it and I remember being really impressed with it. I love the, uh, the mask. There's like a half mask that he wears in the movie. And then there's just this incredibly entrancing shot of him running through an absolutely empty times square in New York city. And it was just like, Holy moly, that's incredible. I still don't understand how they did that because as I as I remember it, there's not much in terms of CGI there. Like they literally went into Times Square, shut it down early in the morning and did this Tom Cruise scene there, which yeah. is just super awesome. That's those are the things I remember about it. I got to rewatch this. Man, you you mentioning Jason Lee just reminded me like, dude, the first like 10 minutes of this film are so satisfyingly early noughties. Like there's a needle drop. Of, it's a. It's Jason Lee, who's just to me just reminds me of that period. And B, like the song that comes on is uh, you know that Kid A Radiohead track, "Everything in Its Right Place," mm. and just like yep. everything about like that opening ten minutes feels incredibly of its moment. And uh, yeah, it's a nice little time capsule to 2001. All right. Well, another great segue because my number four here is also from 2001. This is uh, less psychological than Vanilla Sky, but still a, I think it would fit into an unraveling reality. 
This is a guy named Jake's first day on the job as a Los Angeles detective. And for Jake, it's a pretty pretty eventful day, I'd say, of protecting and serving. He confiscates some weed from some kids at the park, pays a visit to a local drug dealer, stops a sexual assault, all unknowingly being set up as the fall guy for a heist by his new mentor, Alonzo Harris, in 2001's Training Day. Yeah. <laughs> Build jails because of me. Judges have handed out over 15,000 man years of incarceration time based on my investigation. You got today and today only to show me who and what you're made of. You hear me? That's it. That's what I'm talking about. First day on the job, you hit a $3 million seizure. Police officer! Get away from the girl! No, no, no. We're not racking up arrest today. You let him go. What more you want? I want justice. Is right? that I mean, not justice? That's street justice. What's wrong with street justice? Oh, what? Just let the animals wipe themselves out. God willing. You can't be like this. Open your eyes. Can't you see? Police, we got a search warrant. You ain't no police! I was thinking, you know, unraveling realities. Um, and, and I think this counts because... Jake has no idea like he's he's along for the ride as this rookie partner and Alonzo is playing this game of chess with every move throughout the day that again just like the Truman Show you go back and watch it a second time after you know what's happening and you see those bricks being laid every scene by Denzel Washington's character now Ethan Hawke as Jake is great in this movie as a person purposefully in the shadow of Denzel Washington, he was nominated for an Oscar for um, his performance as this naive rookie detective. But of course, the MVP here is Denzel Washington, who won his first Academy Award for acting for this movie. It's it's just oh, it's so good. We get peaks of Alonzo's like um, deception along the way. Like there's a scene in which he introduces Jake to these department heads and he's super cordially, super nice. And he sends Jake away so he can conduct some business. And then we start to see the cracks in these relationships. And Denzel Washington certainly has had more nuanced roles and some might even say better performances. Uh, my buddy Moose is a big fan of Malcolm X. I know a lot of people would say Crimson Tide. But for me, this is the this this I won't say it's his best, but I will say it's my favorite of his He's just like chewing scenery in every scene as his chances of survival hang in the balance. It's really kind of like, I feel like it's him doing his version of Pacino. Mm. And, uh, you know, we get to see his his plot go into effect. <laughs> the, the culmination of Jake's unraveling reality as it ends, as he ends up in this gangster's bathroom in the bathtub with a shotgun to his head saved only by a uh, I'll just say a trinket that he picked up early in the earlier in the day is fantastic and even after you've seen it and you know what happens that scene is still really really tense this one uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua and written by David Ayer who you know for a script apart thing man I would love to see Ayer on the show to talk about his script for the movie Sabotage from 2014, because yeah, I know, yeah. I know that movie got sabotaged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'd love David on. He's He seems like a really interesting guy. And um, yeah, obviously, kind of, it's been interesting watching his career. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Training Day. Um, 
and of course he was involved in like he was involved in fast and furious i think like you know that was he had some involvement in that and obviously that kind of uh franchise has gone on to just take over the world yeah. you know it, it's, it's just been quite quite interesting recently like um you know he obviously had 2016 suicide squad and it didn't quite pan out the way and that he wanted in terms of like you know the cultural impact of that film probably the finished product you know i, I think he would probably sort of uh yeah sort of acknowledge that it, it, it didn't perform and as, as a movie it didn't hold together certainly the way that the um the james gunn version did but yeah it's kind of been interesting sort of following his career path he seems like a really interesting guy who's quite upfront about like his uh you know uh the ups and downs of his career and sort of how he's kind of like yeah sort of tried to sharpen his craft his craft but has also kind of been a bit beholden to the kind of uh the sort of machinations of the industry so yeah he seems he seems like an interesting guy but dude i'm really glad that you managed to get a movie like this on because i was like to me like yeah unraveling realities aren't all aren't, they're, they're, they're not exclusive to movies in which like there's a twist at the end and it was all a dream like <laughs> there is a there is a there is a re- reality that is involved that is unraveling in a much more grounded way in this movie and yeah i did kind of like i really wanted to get something along these lines in my list but i just couldn't find like um i just couldn't bump any of the uh <laughs> any of the movies that i uh, you know that, that ended up on my list but um man you know one thing that like uh this movie and uh, it yeah, one thing that this movie really reminds me of and really takes me back to is, do you remember there was a, we're going back to our chat about hip hop here, do you remember like this kind of era, you know, there would always be sort of great kind of, I can't remember who put this movie out, but it was one of those instances of there being great synergy behind the studio putting it out and their music division, I think it might have been Warner. And so, yeah, they would have the soundtrack. They would, they would ha- essentially have like an original soundtrack. The soundtrack would be available on CD and it would be <laughs> yeah. interwoven into the movie um, to the point where I think like Dre and Snoop and even Macy Gray are kind of appearing in, in Training Day. But yeah, this, this yeah. like I remember having the, the soundtrack album to Training Day. And yeah, to me, it just yeah, reminds me that it's kind of completely dried up now, but there was a period where, you know, if there was a new Godzilla movie coming out, it would absolutely have, like, a soundtrack CD accompanying it where it would be, I don't know, Puff Daddy and the dude out Led Zeppelin. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, I forgot about that song. Yeah. Oh, I hope after this show I can forget about it again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for bringing it back up. Yeah, so uh, that, it, yeah, that really... Uh, don't know why this that's my particular memory that i attached to this movie but um yeah i haven't seen it in a second but i remember really really liking this film wasn't uh wasn't puff daddy also on this soundtrack with david bowie (laughs) also i'm pretty sure he had a song on there with i'm pretty sure there was a song with the two of them on here (laughs) wow you're right, man. They, there used to be a soundtrack on the new release wall for whatever movie came out. And yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure I had this soundtrack, too. There was a lot of like Dr. Dre that you mentioned. Exhibit was on there. Uh, the locks were on there. There's a lot of good stuff on there. They should bring him back. We should we should get like, uh, you know, I don't know, 
the Batman should have its own. It doesn't necessarily have to have Jamiroquai on there, like the Godzilla soundtrack. <laughs> but let's bring back the soundtrack album, okay? Hollywood, if you're listening, let's do this. And bring back Jamiroquai to do all soundtracks. <laughs> At least one song on every soundtrack. Yeah. Or the Quad City DJs. That's that's the <laughs> we, that's the clip that we're going to take from this episode. Like you said, I, I wanted to get uh, a movie like this too because I was thinking I don't want to go all kind of dream states or psychosis or supernatural. And this just seemed, as I was looking through, so I, I often do this when I prepare for a list. I'll go to my physical media shelves and I'll just look through, like, does that count? Can I justify this? I haven't talked about this before. And when I saw Training Day, all I could do is think about the day from Jake's point of view. And it's like, yeah, that's definitely his reality unraveling in front of him. So yeah, I think it's, I I agree. I think it's a worthy spot on this list. Definitely. Yeah. No arguments for me. All right, sir. Number three for you. Okay. I'm keeping it in that same time period. Um, So when I was talking about, uh, when I was thinking about Vanilla Sky and the way that kind of like the reality that unravels there, is kind of very much a cause of a certain type of like cons- sort of American consumerism in the remake. Certainly, that um, yeah, it, there's there's a there's a kind of devotion to American consumerism and the American dream that I think like is interpretable as sort of causing the unraveling, or you know, they're being punished for that devotion, and that's what causes everything to kind of fall apart. That is very much alive in both the next movies that I'm going to list. Number three for me is American Psycho. Patrick Bateman has a busy day. 12.30 power lunch. Another martini, Paul. 3.45 board meeting. What do you think? Oh, very nice. 7 o'clock friendly takeover. Patrick, you're so sweet. 9.15, make a killing. So, what do you do? I'm into, uh... Well, murders and executions, mostly. American Psycho, rated R. Such a good movie. Dude, such a good movie, Jason. It's, uh, you know, and I think it's like, uh, there, are, there are many things that uh, kind of work about this film, but so easily couldn't. Like, I, it, it's one of those adaptations that, like, in the wrong hands could have, it's such a the, the the sort of base text the Brett Easton Ellis novel it would be so easy to kind of lean into the wrong aspects of that or lean into an interpretation of that that kind of glamorizes the thing or celebrates the things that you know I I, I think the book kind of really intended to criticize it's right kind of blackly comic it's incredibly satirical and but there's a kind of nuance and a subtlety to, to that satire that I think like in the hands of, you know, so many other directors could have gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. But instead we had uh, Mary Harron directing it. And I think it's really important that it was a female perspective. Uh, it was a female director who kind of, uh, yeah, was put in charge of this because on at surface level, it's like bleakly, mis- or it, it could be read as bleakly misogynist when actually I think it's much more sophisticated than that. Yeah. And yeah, to me, again, this was really, really, really formative. And it, uh, yeah, I think it came out in 2000, but it was very much like, you know, the, the sort of 
I think it was set in the 80s and was very much a comment on like, well, there's the, there's the iconic scene in American Psycho where they're kind of trading um, business cards and sort of like <laughs> obsessively kind of, yeah, just it, almost with this intense jealousy that lends itself to rage kind of like comparing <laughs> comparing the sort of like stock and a stock of the paper and the feel of like the engraving and the embossing yeah and uh yeah there were just so many kind of like uh really neat touches to this film that kind of bring to life the commentary of the book and yeah it's fantastic the journey i mean uh patrick bateman um christian bale as patrick bateman is phenomenal and his physicality in this movie is, you know, perfect. His smarminess, his his kind of like descent and his disintegration as someone with any kind of grip on reality is really fascinating. And um, you really go on this journey with him. Uh, and of course, by the end, like what's so interesting in comparison to a lot of the other movies that we've listed here is you know often the kind of like result of a reality unraveling is kind of a destruction of the character a destruction of the protagonist and they're not always left at the end of the movie in the best place but in american psycho he's despite despite all the violence despite all the atrocities despite the monstrousness he's kind of fine because there is a there is a degree to which like uh that particular type of person then and that particular type of person now is completely inoculated from harm and you know that they're kind of there's never any kind of uh real tangible trouble that's gonna that they're gonna land in just no matter what they do because because right. of you know their their race and their sort of uh, gender and their, their sort of power within that kind of patriarchal structure. So yeah, it's, it's a real kind of like fascinating uh, switch up of, of one of the kind of tropes of these movies in which reality unravels. I'm a big fan of American Psycho. I'm glad you brought this up because this didn't make my list. But uh, you already mentioned it, but fantastic performance by Christian Bale. There are two scenes in here with music from the 80s that are classic scenes that even if I don't have an hour and 45 minutes to watch the movie, I can put those on at any time on YouTube and just <laughs> love the performance by Christian Bale as he reviews the music while he's doing terrible things. And they're just they're they're so goddamn good. And uh, I wanted to also mention that it's funny because your your last pick was a Tom Cruise movie, and he said that he modeled his performance after a Tom Cruise interview on like one of the late night shows where he said the person looked very friendly on the outside but didn't look like they had anything going on behind the eyes. And I always thought that was pre pretty interesting about his portrayal, basically trying to be a version of Tom Cruise as Patrick Bateman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why, like, that exact description is why those music scenes work so well. Like, it, it took me a while to kind of break down, like, what is so effective about, like, the kind of contrast of, like, Patrick sort of putting on these albums 
as he and like explaining in the most rich detail all of their kind of like uh you know what's so fantastic about these albums and then sort of like picking up an axe and murdering someone and like it is that thing of like you know on this on surface level he is like engaging with this piece of art but but really he's it's just a product to him and he's he's almost like regurgitating like a music review he's it, there's there's um, mm-hmm. there's like a code switching <laughs> that he has that he's able to kind of like he's able to sort of like do the dance of being you know a p- performatively functioning and sort of like approachable human being but then he is dead behind the eyes and yeah it's a it's such a great movie and um yeah once once you've watched it once and kind of have like got through the the horror of it the sort of like the violence of it you can appreciate the comedy of it like on a on a much greater level on rewatches yeah yeah exactly it's important to understand that you're going into a dark comedy and not like a straight up drama yeah yeah all right my number 3 let's see We're going to go here to one of my favorite screenwriters who we've already mentioned. This one is written by Shane Black, and it is 1996's The Long Kiss Goodnight. Hello, girls. Caitlin, come help me in the kitchen. Hurry up, because I forget where it is. That's her mom. She's got amnesia. (laughs) What if you couldn't remember your real name, your first kiss? Or your last goodbye. I don't remember. Honey, you have an ETA on that carrot? Stow it. And then suddenly... I used to do this! I'm a chef! No! Without warning... Give me something else! Celery! Ah! All your memories... Name's Charlie. I'm coming back. ...came flooding back to you. Isn't Charlie? Long time. One bullet at a time. When you approach the topic i was like okay one of my picks should be an amnesia movie but what i found was like my very first thought was the born identity but then again that doesn't really work because he doesn't really have a reality to begin with he's starting kind of with a blank slate and i think that's the problem with including amnesia movies on a list like this is that you don't have a reality to unravel you're just kind of learning things and you you have a reality building in front of you but in this movie, that's a little bit different because uh, this character, Samantha Kane, played by Gina Davis, has had a life for eight years that she's built back up after having amnesia. So we start with her as Samantha Kane. She's a teacher in this Scranton, Pennsylvania suburb with her boyfriend, Hal, and her eight-year-old daughter. She woke up eight years ago washed up on shore, pregnant, no memory of anything. And slowly she's built a life in this small town. And, uh, it's, it's like the week of Christmas or Christmas Eve. She's, uh, she's in like a Christmas parade. And then after the parade, they have a party at the house, a Christmas party. And she has to drive this drunk. I think he's like a family friend or something. He's to drive this guy home. He's trying to mess around in the car, and she crashes the car. And after this wreck, she starts to realize that she has a very special set of skills. Skills that are almost instantly put to the test when a man, I think his name is One-Eyed Jack, 
comes and tries to kill her in her house. I I think this is a really, really great movie. Like I said, written by Shane Black, who, you know what? If you want more Shane Black, go and listen to Script Apart, where he talks about Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. But when you watch a Shane Black movie, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a really witty movie. You're going to get a smart movie. But most importantly, you're going to get a very fun movie. And I think that's what this brings to the table. It's got a great cast. Samuel L. Jackson's also there. He has a front seat to this unraveling reality as Samantha Kane makes her transition back into this assassin known as Charlie Baltimore. And her new reality, as it starts like meshing with the old one, is also really interesting because she's turning into this, you know, uh, soulless killer. But those eight years that she's built as a different life, her current reality kind of seeps in there. And she's got this struggle to both be this assassin, but at the same time, be a good mother to this eight-year-old kid that she just can't like forget about as much as her Charlie Baltimore uh, alter ego wants her to. So it's this cool wrestling match there. In terms of action movies and Christmas movies, this is one of my like annual rewatches around Christmas time. It has an amazing climax near the, uh, it's like, I'm pretty sure it's the Canadian border up by Niagara Falls. And it has one of the biggest explosions that I can remember in a film. It's also one of the only movies that I love Gina Davis in. For some reason, she's never connected with me, but I think she's really terrific here in terms of somebody transforming both mentally, but also physically. She looks completely different as her realities start bending. And the last thing I'll say about this is that Samuel L. Jackson, as Mitch, is really great as the sidekick. He's this down-on-his-luck private eye who just needs a break. And a lot of the stuff that he's dealing with has been brought on by himself, but he's got a really great redemption arc. It's got a great villain I just, I really love The Long Kiss Goodnight, and I wanted to put an amnesia movie on here, and I think this one fits perfectly. Yeah, no, it's so funny that you mentioned Born Identity. I literally watched Born Identity last night to see, do I need to include this? And I think you're right, like, you know, same thing with Memento. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like, an, well, I guess, like, is Memento a reality it's maybe that maybe Memento is an unreality traveling movie because it works. So, yeah, <laughs> that's like, true. But um, yeah, those films, as you say, like we're straight away in a position of like disruption. Whereas, as you say here, you know Samantha, uh, Gina Davis's character, she has this kind of domesticity that like she's she's happy with and she's she's enjoying and then it all kind of goes awry and it, it, yeah, reality as she knows it begins to unravel. This is such a good film and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real kind of like relic of its time. Like movies like this just do not get made anymore. And, um, probably in part because of this movie, you know, I, I think it really underperformed and, um, it kind of caused a bit of a, like, you know, dark night, the soul for Shane Black, who wasn't sure, where to go from this this point um of course he came back and did all sorts of amazing things uh you know kiss kiss bang bang included but um yeah it ticks off so many of the things that uh you know have become the hallmarks of of shane's work it's festive it has that kind of noirish uh plot 
mean, it's, I, I forget exactly the kind of like mystery propelling it, but it's something to do with like a false flag operation and like a yeah, it's it's. It, I remember it being like a much more kind of like intricate, um, you know, sort of. Uh, I just assumed it'd be kind of a spy situation, and then sort of the actual kind of thing that unravels is um is a really intricate plot that goes all the way to the top, you know, in terms of sort of like government and CIA and all sorts. So, yeah, no, I absolutely adore this movie, and I wish that movies like this were made more today. I agree. This one was directed by Rennie Harlan, who of course did Die Hard 2 and then Cliffhanger. So the dude knows how to shoot action movies. Just solid movie all around. Great script, great action. If you haven't seen Long Kiss Goodnight, go check it out. Number two for you, Al. I am fully aware that at this point, I'm just essentially like (laughs) naming kind of posters that a 17 year old kid would have up in their kind of college <laughs> dorm but number two for me is fight club how much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight from the director of seven the first rule of fight club is do not talk about fight club <laughs> we gotta take fight club up a notch what did you guys do without pain you would have nothing what kind of sick game are you playing brad pitt you're not killing anyone man. Edward Norton. Something terrible is about to happen. What did you expect? Fight Club, rated R. All right, all right. I love Fight Club. This is on my honorable mentions. I'm not going to fault you for having Fight Club on here. Let's go. Yeah, no, man. I love Fight Club. And again, you know, to go back to my caveat at the beginning, these are films that kind of like I didn't realize. I didn't really have a grasp on like the idea of philosophy at the moment in which I encountered uh, a lot of these films and Fight Club was one of the first. Um, Yeah, like the degree to which it teaches you to kind of question reality for better and for worse, as we've seen, is is pretty remarkable. Again, like American Psycho, it's an adaptation. And yeah, the uh, like I I hadn't read the book, obviously, when I um, first watched this kind of, I guess, like I want to say like 12 or 13 probably would have been my age. Um, I've since mm-hmm. read the book and a bit like American Psycho, like you just have to admire the degree to which like there is so much interiority to those novels, um, to, to this particular novel. Like so much of it, you know, is taking place in in the headspace of, of uh, the character, the protagonist um, played by Edward Norton. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and translating that to 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 movie to a movie in which it does not lend itself as well to kind of interiority we're not you know we're not getting that same kind of glimpse into their brain um it's a really difficult task and jim alls i think it is uh who wrote the screenplay does a fantastic job kind of yeah sort of uh connecting those dots and sort of making this work as a movie, I think it actually works better as a movie. Um, and yeah, in terms of like the sort of twist and the the reveal, this to me is up there with one of like the all time greats. Like you know, people people talk about like Sixth Sense as that like uh, you know com- super high example of like a twist or, you know, sort of like the sort of like right. rug being pulled out from beneath you. But 
to me, like Fight Club was like the first time I realized that could really happen in a movie. And yeah, it's it's got a bit of a kind of complicated legacy today in that like I think so many people have latched on to arguably like the wrong parts of this movie in a way that, you know, you see every As now people and again. often do. <laughs> yeah, like that kind of Wolf of Wall Street thing of people maybe kind of like the thing the thing that this movie intends to criticize some audiences being like, yeah, that thing. Um yeah, it's which is depressing. But yeah, the, the sort right. of black comedy of this movie, the sort of slow descent to come to kind of come back to that that phrase that I've used quite a lot in regard to this this like mini genre of movie. It's also masterfully done, like the pacing of it as, you know, the kind of mystery kind of gathers pace and the chaos, project chaos begins to spread. It's uh yeah, it's it's fantastically done. It's like Fincher, I guess, arguably at his most populist. I'm trying to like I'm trying to think if there's like a if there's a Fincher movie that's kind of like as popcorn as this. And I'm not sure there is. If you could call maybe a movie Panic Room, they... which came after this. Oh wow, yeah, that did. I always had that in my head as coming prior, but yeah, no, you're right. Um, yeah, it's it, a, a lot of his other work has this restraint that um, I don't think he exhibits here. And yeah, it's Fincher with the handbrake off. It's so stylized, and he obviously has a fantastic time, kind of uh, playing with all those elements. Visually, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, thematically, it's so rich. And again, like we're seeing that same relationship. Like a lot of these films, in which like around this time, in which like reality unravels, it's it's a cause of and a punishment of, you know, a devotion to to capitalism. You know, it was that was the case in that was the case in Vanilla Sky. That was the case in American Psycho. That's the case again here. To a degree, you know, like he is uh, in in the Truman Show. Also, like you know, he is within. He doesn't realize it, but he's within a capitalist product in in terms of this TV show, full of product placement and sort of ads buried into it. And yeah, there there is someone much smarter than me that at some point uh, will or should write a book about like that relationship because it was obviously some sort of preoccupation around around this kind of time. Like there was something about like. Uh, the like influx of consumer uh, consumerism that a lot of kind of directors, a lot of screenwriters were sort of thinking about at the time, and the sort of maddening effect of those things, the numbing effect of those things, lent them. Uh, you know th- that led to this spate of movies that kind of re- were all asking the same question or expl- exploring the same thing from a variety of different different angles. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And and I hadn't really thought about it until you started bringing up these movies like Fight Club and American Psycho and Vanilla Sky. That is that is really interesting. I love this movie. David Fincher is obviously a master. And I'll say, too, if you have never had the chance, the Fight Club Blu-ray has like four different commentaries by different groups of people. And you can learn so much about writing about uh, filmmaking from those commentaries. I highly recommend those. If you're listening to this show because of Al and you love screenwriting, there's one with the uh, the author, Chuck Platt. How do you say his name? Chuck Palahniuk? 
I always said Poliniac, but I feel like that's overly phonetic, and it's probably not going to be that. If you're listening, Chuck, <laughs> Chuck, <apologies>. Chuck P. Chuck <laughs> P. Well, Chuck P. Yes, uh, and and Jim Oles have a commentary together on there, which is really really informative too. Just a masterclass in direction, and one of the best final shots in a movie with the pixies playing over it as yeah, you see yeah. the devastation of the foreground and the devastation of the background is just fantastic so good all right my number two we're gonna go back in time here a bit this is gonna be the oldest on my list now al i gotta admit you surprised me when you had heard of Iceman from 1984 You'll surprise me even more and impress me even more if you've heard of my number two here. This is a movie called Madeline, Anatomy of a Nightmare from 1972. Are you familiar with this one? I'm not, no, but the the title alone, I'm in. (laughs) This is also sometimes referred to as Madeline's study of a nightmare, but I know it under Anatomy of a Nightmare. So the, the gist of the movie is that Madeline is our main character She's played by Camille Keaton. She has endured this traumatizing pregnancy that resulted in a stillborn child. And she's finding herself increasingly lost in these bizarre nightmares where different versions of herself that are all different colors are chasing her through the woods. And they always end at a brutal car wreck with some like various things going on in the car wreck, which I will not spoil but she begins to start to question her like mundane, boring, suburban life with her husband. And she starts taking refuge in these extramarital affairs and this kind of unstoppable hedonism as her mental stability starts to break down. So Camille Keaton is an interesting actress. She's uh, somebody who went over to Italy to start her acting career following the footsteps of Clint Eastwood who went over and started making spaghetti westerns, and she thought, you know what, maybe I can do the same thing. So she went over there. She was in the pretty popular Jello film, uh, What Have You Done to Solange, in a really small role as Solange. And then she was in two other Italian films, Tragic Ceremony and then Sex of the Witch. And then she came to America and did the movie that I think she's most widely known for, 1978's exploitation rape revenge film i spit on your grave which i still have not seen because i i just don't want to uh it's just not a subject that i think i would want to spend an hour and a half with um but she and, and then after that she just kind of like went into really small roles and went back to that i spit on your grave well a couple of times but that's kind of it And it's a shame because I think she's really, really great in this movie. And I kind of wonder why her career didn't take off after this. Uh, The film as a whole is kind of a mess. But, you know, part of me thinks it's on purpose. Another part of me knows that these Italian filmmakers, especially uh, the guy who made this, and his name's escaping me now, but he mostly did like spaghetti westerns and stuff. He, He probably wasn't that skilled, but... You can still read the movie as playing out like a dream with very little thread connecting things. Uh, It's it's a really interesting movie, and I don't want to spoil the results of the unraveling reality, but I will say that it involves her questioning whether or not her nightmares are real. 
Uh, it's got questions about whether or not her affairs are real. And the ending takes a really interesting turn that has a lot of parallels to a 2010 movie that I, I'm not going to reveal because I think if I say the name of that movie, it will give away the ending. Uh, but I will just say that, yeah, Madeline Anatomy of a Nightmare is a really interesting movie. It, for a very long time, was only available on like import VHS tapes. And then finally, Vinegar Syndrome, a company that I love, put it out in a box set that contains all three of her Italian films. Uh, not counting What Have You Done to Solange, but it has Tragic Ceremony, Sex of the Witch, and Anatomy of a Nightmare. And uh, it's a really good package. So if you are interested, I would pick up that box set because it's got a lot of interesting Italian films in there. And uh, this, I think, is probably her best. I think I said 1972, but um, this one came out in 1974. The others, uh, Tragic Ceremony was 72 and Sex of the Witch was 73. So yeah, Italian movies, she speaks English in them because they did not want her to try to speak Italian. So her stuff's all in English and the other characters are all dubbed in English. So that makes it also another interesting uh, wrinkle to the watch. I'm really glad you mentioned this one, man, because I haven't, I haven't watched it, but like I was really trying to kind of work into my list uh, as I kind of wrote it, looked back on it and was like, you've gone pretty college frat bro kind of dorm room posters, <laughs> Al. Um, when I realized that, I was like, maybe I should mix it up. And there are so many movies that kind of like, well, that exist in the same kind of, there is almost like a, a sort of mini genre within this mini genre of um, reality, realities unraveling um, specific to a woman who, because uh, this film is kind of, there's kind of a miscarriage, right? That's like, that sort of uh, begins kind of her, I'm, I'm going basically only on what someone recommend. Someone basically, the only kind of uh, encounter I've had with this movie is someone recommending it to me after I watched and was one of the few people to fall in love with Darren Aronofsky's Mother. And they were like, oh, I should oh. go back and see this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Mother was like a kind of, that almost came, that, that almost made an appearance on my list as did like Rosemary's Baby as an example of like, a, like the sort of unraveling of a woman um and the w degree to which the men around her tell her that everything's fine the the degree to which like her unraveling is because of like a an experience that she has that's specific to her womanhood kind of thing so in mother in mother that's obviously kind of like uh you know pregnancy and childbirth here it seems like it's a miscarriage from what my friend was telling me um and it uh, is yeah yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, again, sort of Rosemary's Baby, it's the same. And sort of what's so interesting about those particular, this kind of particular like genre within a genre where there's like a female protagonist is, you know, in the real world, as in these movies, there is, there's just like, sadly, uh, you know, a sort of wealth of men who are sort of queuing up to tell whoever the, the person in distress is the woman in distress you know to tell them that it's all in their <laughs> head and they're imagining it and uh yeah it sort of kind of plays into the sort of uh reality unraveling in an interesting way so uh yeah i'm i'm glad that sort of you you were able to bring a different flavor and to to kind of um 
yeah, to, to give a shout out to, to that kind of uh, take on the sort of unraveling reality movie. We are at our grand finale here. Number one for you. Uh, and man, I'm, I'm, can I take a guess at what year you're going to say? <laughs> yeah, go on. All right. Is it going to be from 1999? It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's have it. All right. Put your trench coat on. It's the Matrix. Human beings are a disease, and we are the cure. Now. So you're here to save the world. Everything you know about reality. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Everything you believe about the future. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Will be a thing of the past. No one can be told what the Matrix is. Whoa. You have to see it for yourself. The Matrix. I feel like this is kind of like, every, this was signposted a way off, everyone must have guessed already. It's kind of like the equivalent of like, you know, sort of picking the Beatles in a list of like your favorite <laughs> bands kind of thing. Um, but yeah, The Matrix just had to be my number one here. Just for the sheer blunt force trauma of being a teenager, discovering The Matrix, and it, it just like shattering my understanding of what reality is and, you know, the what it could be without me knowing. Um, again, like Truman Show, it sent me into like a bit of a spiral. And um, yeah, it every single aspect of this movie is perfect. And it is such an amazing gift to, it, it's such an amazing kind of like um, marriage, I suppose, of just like, pure blockbuster entertainment adrenaline enjoyment that kind of that feeling that you go to the cinema for and also kind of like richness of philosophy richness of uh you know theme it it kind of knits those things together in a way that like those these two things don't often sit together you know spectacularly well sometimes like they bump up against each other and it's as a little kind of like Trojan horse for the sort of like Cartesian, you know, uh, questions and the existentialism that sort of like, uh, this, this kind of movie possesses, but doesn't kind of, uh, you know, announce it's, it's really kind of, you're so, uh, you know, pulled into this world and into this story that you don't really notice the way it's kind of drip feeding you, you know, a philosophy degree, uh, as you watch it. So um yeah, to me like this is such an achievement. I'm also one of the uh you know few people I think who really really loves the sequels and indeed really really loved the the latest film that came out in December. Um Ooh, okay. Yeah, I kind of uh, yeah, basically strange detour here but like uh yeah, I was I was supposed to go over to the film came out in the UK and I think, well, December 17th, same time that it came out in the US, but we don't have HBO Max here. So it was only out in cinemas, but because of Omicron and because I was like going back to see my parents and then traveling to the US, like I couldn't go to the cinema. So I basically just switched my phone off from December 17th <laughs> till I landed in America 10 days later so that it wasn't going to get ruined for me. That is the extent to which like the matrix has like an important part in my life. And, uh, yeah, I just, I love these movies. I love these filmmakers. And 
the the matrix is it's it's almost impossible to imagine sort of blockbuster cinema as we know it today without without the matrix and sort of the impact that it had an immense movie that i've talked about on the show before i, I agree with you i think it's perfect i rewatched it in preparation for the new movie that came out and still to this day there are scenes that like not only put goosebumps on my arms but make me tear up just because they're so perfectly done and it reminds me just like you of sitting in theaters watching it for the first time and realizing as the credits rolled that movies would never be the same because you'd just seen something that changed everything i i love the matrix you alluded to it a little bit earlier in the show where certain people have now like co-opted statements and ideas from this to fragment their own reality in our real world, which is troubling, but also I guess is a testament to how powerful the movie's themes are. Yeah, it certainly kind of uh, complicates the legacy of the film. And like, I can only imagine what it, it, to me, like, you know, that was the lens through which like I viewed the new movie. Uh, I don't, I know, I understand a lot of people felt like uh, sort of shortchanged by the new film because it's not like a Matrix requel in the way that perhaps we've we've become accustomed to expect when a franchise goes away, then comes back 20 years later and attempts to kind of, well, typically, you know, it does that Force Awakens thing of trying to recapture, rebottle a lot of the beats and a lot of the magic of the original. Um, the, the, the sequel, the, the, the recent sequel wasn't prepared to do that but instead it's a reaction very much to the huge swathes of people that sadly, yeah, as you say, co-opted the language, co-opted the messaging of the matrix, but um, yeah, and, and took it in a kind of direction that's kind of pretty bleak, pretty, pretty upsetting. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it, to me, it kind of sums up that thing that I described at the beginning of like, you know, what responsibility, if any, do these movies have for kind of like influencing inadvertently the, the degree to which today, like, we do live in a world where um, submersion in digital worlds has kind of like caused a lot of people to lean into conspiracy, lean into sort of like their own reality in that, that kind of suits their their leanings politically or otherwise and uh yeah it's a really curious tale like the story of the matrix the impact it had uh on cinema and on kind of like pop culture like at large and then sort of how that kind of like calcified into something completely at the other end of the spectrum to what the wachowskis intended and then the sequel, you know, how it attempted to wrestle that back successfully or unsuccessfully. I, you know, it, it like the story of this movie is almost as it's kind of unfolded over the last 20 years is almost, but not quite as fascinating as the story of Neo. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect film and it zips along every time I rewatch it. Like I, I sort of, remember anew or discover anew how like there's not a single it's so lean like there's not a single second that there's not a single scene that doesn't feel like correctly paced that doesn't feel like per, uh, like imperfectly placed within the film as well in terms of like 
the back and forth between action and then, you know, sort of like characters talking out the philosophies of the movie. It's just like, it's an absolute masterpiece. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't extend that same. I love the sequels. I wouldn't extend, extend the same kind of uh, perfection uh, to, to those, to those films, but certainly the matrix, the original matrix, it's just like, it's, it's breaking ground in so many different areas that like, it's hard to keep up. We could record entire two hour podcasts solely on the action and how many kind of like barriers it broke kind of visually in terms of in terms of that side of the movie we could just as easily record a two-hour podcast about sort of yeah this exact topic like how how its depiction of reality unraveling uh blue minds then and did perhaps sort of completely by accident so some seeds that we've kind of seen kind of disrupt i don't know i don't want to you know i don't want to blame the matrix for like ruining democracy or anything but i definitely think sort of like it contributed to um a mindset that we've seen kind of come of age recently in some really really interesting and sort of yeah slightly bleak ways (laughs) yeah you're uh downplaying it there i would say straight up terrifying (laughs) yeah but uh (laughs) 1999, great year for movies. I mean, you had Fight Club on there. You've got The Matrix on there. Two amazing movies about unraveling realities. And uh, my finale here is also from 1999. So again, perfect segue, Al, with a movie that is probably not a surprise. And it's probably the most mainstream, maybe aside from Training Day on my list here. But I just love The Sixth Sense too much to leave it off. I see dead people. The Sixth Sense is a psychological thriller masterpiece. The most intense, most moving film this summer. You ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? Yes. That's them. A four-star gem that grows more and more riveting, remarkable, breathtaking. The most unexpected thriller of the season. The Sixth Sense, rated PG-13, now playing. You know, just like The Matrix, just like Fight Club, it's one of those movies that I remember seeing in theaters. And I was lucky enough to go in to see The Sixth Sense before the internet was around to spoil it for me. Uh, And it was one of those things where my friends and I would go see everything that came out. And so this happened to be that opening night packed theater movie that we saw that weekend because of the buzz when it was coming out. And it absolutely blew my mind. For those listeners of you who are in the dark about this movie, uh, I'll just give you the overview. It's about a child psychologist named Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis in a role that he just knocks out of the park. It's always great when you see a Bruce Willis role where it seems like he cares about what he's doing. And in 1999, he still cared. He's working with a nine-year-old boy named Cole, played by Haley Joel Osment, in just a breakthrough role for him. And uh, he's working with this nine-year-old because, according to his mom, he has social problems that have led to him being physically harmed at school, or so she thinks. And uh, once Malcolm gains his trust, Cole tells him that he can see dead people. The unraveling in this movie, I think there's two. There's 
a smaller but more emotional one, and that's the unraveling of Lynn's reality as she starts to realize that her child has this special ability to communicate with the undead. There's a scene in a car that happens in the climax of this movie that is so powerful, and it's just the kid explaining to his mom why he knows what happened to a man on a bike. And Tony Collette's reaction to this news is incredible. As she, you know, at first she's in denial and then he starts telling her things from her mother that he would never know unless it was true. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress here. She did not win. I still think it's a crime that Tony Collette has no Academy Awards on her mantle because she is so deserving. She's fantastic. Yeah, this yeah, scene, yeah, it's just amazing. But the bigger reality unraveling, of course, is that of Malcolm, the psychiatrist, after his work with Cole is considered over. And I tell you, watching this in the theater for the first time, all I wanted to do when it was over was go watch it again because there's so much that you pick up the second time. Even if you know... I, I think everybody by now knows the ending of The Sixth Sense because it's one of those endings, much like Star Wars, if you haven't seen it, you you know about it anyway because it's been in pop culture everywhere for over 20 years. But even if you have an idea of what the twist is, even if you know what's going on, it's still amazing. See it anyway if you haven't seen it. It's just so powerful. Everybody here is great. M. Night Shyamalan, this is like his entry into the world he started with the sixth sense he followed up with the equally great unbreakable um but i I, to me he's never topped the sixth sense it's just an amazing movie all around it's a great horror movie uh it's great child performance which you don't often get and it's about as scary as pg-13 movies get a lot of people forget this is this is pg-13 um it's just such a great movie every time i watch it i pick up new things Uh, I can't say enough good things about The Sixth Sense. The only reason, I'll tell you, the only reason I left The Matrix off was because I was almost certain you were going to talk about The Matrix. Uh, (laughs) The Matrix would definitely have been on this list if I wasn't confident you were going to bring it up. So I'm glad you did because that would have like really bugged me if we had gone through. (laughs) I might have had to like pull an audible and just put it at my number one. But 1999, damn, great year for movies. Yeah, man, when you kind of announced that this was... Okay, your number one was a movie from 1999. I was like, well, it's probably going to be this. Maybe it will be Eyes Wide Shut, which I think there's an argument to be made, kind of fits into the reality unraveling kind of uh, genre as well. But there was a part of me that was like, please, please just say Austin Powers, the spy that shagged me, (laughs) and then give me like a 10 minute kind of theory on why that's a reality (laughs) unraveling movie. Um, No, man, I have exactly the same uh, relationship with Sixth Sense that you do. And uh, yeah, I I think what works about it, um, and we know works about it because we've seen it like airlifted into a lot of other kind of reality unraveling movies since, is like, it's, it's the person who should be with, it's, it's a, it's a person in a position of authority who should have like the greatest grasp on reality that is the person to kind of like go on that descent and end up kind of uh, having to question everything. Like 
he, you know, uh, Bruce Willis's character is a psych- psychologist, therapist. I, mean, I forget his official title, but yeah, he is like a man of medicine. There should be a guy who is who is in charge of reality and ha- who has like a sort of grip on it. That, um, but but of course, in fact, like he goes, uh, you know, by the time we do get to that ending, which I won't spoil, but come on, we we all know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, it's it's all the more kind of harrowing for the fact, uh, you know, for for his position, it, it it hits harder for the fact that he's a man in a position of power and a position of authority. The same way that in Shutter Island, you know, we have like Leonardo DiCaprio's character. He is like a man of the a man of the law, you know. And I guess you can make the same thing uh, to a degree. You can make the same point a degree uh, to a degree, I guess, about like the Wicker Man. Um, you know, back in mm-hmm. the 70s. It's it's like such a... You know when a movie becomes like a like a byword? Like, you just need to... You know, the sixth sense, just by invoking that title, like, that people know what to expect from a film. If, like, if, right. if, if you mention the sixth sense, like, I think it kind of, like, laid the foundations or helped laid the foundations for a particular twistiness that, like, not only would define Shyamalan and also kind of be like, uh, you know, kind of like his, it would, it, it's kind of almost hindered him as well because like the, the expectation after this movie and that reveal was always, <laughs> you know, like give us the twist, you know, Shyamalan's going to give us an amazing twist. And it almost became like something that hindered him as a storyteller perhaps and sort of like uh, meant that, he wasn't allowed just to tell stories anymore that, that sort of didn't deliver on that. And it's, it's incredibly hard to kind of come up with, with, uh, with twists and reveals and, and sort of third acts that stun in the way that this did. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's again, it's one of those films like the matrix, like you can't imagine, uh, you know, the course of blockbuster filmmaking having, uh, you know, gone the same way had, had this film not come out. And, um, yeah, it's 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 been a while since I rewatched it, but like my first encounter of this movie, because um, I kind of missed it in cinemas, just because I was a bit young, and like it, like so I knew the ending, and I think oh, that's okay. why, I, yeah, which is which kind of like is why it was it was actually pretty late on that I actually went to it because for the longest time I was like, oh, I know I know the ending, so you know that sucks, but then like watching it for the first time even knowing kind of where it was headed, I just had such a good time kind of going on that journey. And it's not a movie that's reliant on its twist to work. Um, Although I do wish I had the experience. I do wish I had like the experience you did of like opening night, getting to experience it raw. Um, Yeah. That's actually one of, one of those movies I'd say, like if I could experience like a film completely fresh on opening night, you know, this would definitely be up there um but yeah as it happens that didn't work out for me and instead like my kind of first encounter with Sixth Sense was was a lot later and I just yeah even even knowing the ending I absolutely fell in love with it and I've watched it like seven eight times since then yeah and you mentioned the fact that it doesn't rely on that twist it's not even the plot of the movie like the the plot of the movie is around how we get this nine-year-old boy to be okay with his gift 
and like figure out how to coexist with these ghosts that he can see. It's yeah, it's another layer to it. That's awesome. Uh, I know we've run a long time right now. Uh, We're, we're, we're running a bit over, so I don't want to keep you too long, but did you have any honorable mentions that you want to rattle off? Just, uh, just any titles that didn't make your list that we haven't mentioned? Yeah. I mean, again, from the same period, Donnie Darko was like, how do I squeeze Mm. this in? But, um, and yeah, like we've touched on a lot of them, like Shutter Island, there are sort of uh, contemporary examples of this and contemporary examples that have kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in TV more recently as the kind of industry shifted more that way, where we're seeing this same kind of question of like, what is real uh, play out in, in kind of like newer, fresher stories. Donnie Darko was the big one that was like, that I haven't mentioned so far that I was like, how do I get this in? Just couldn't happen. Yeah. Sorry, Donnie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, shout out to you. Cool. I've got a couple I'll rattle off real quick. Total Recall was probably like number six on my list. Just <laughs> yeah. a great unraveling reality, reality there. Uh, the others from 2001, I did not put on the list because that was number one on another list and has a lot of similarities to The Sixth Sense. Uh, Usual Suspects has a really interesting unraveling reality for one character. Mm-hmm. The... The Invitation from 2015, I think, is a really Love great movie, movie about an, yeah, yeah. a dinner party where, where a couple people have unraveling realities. And then a fun pick that I left off was The Santa Claus. That's an interesting one, too, as like a normal person's reality unravels as he becomes Santa. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been such a good pick, yeah. But I guess we already got a Christmas movie in that with uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. That's true. That's true. Al, great list. Al Horner, where can people find more of your stuff? They're going to want to go listen to Script Apart. Obviously, you can find that on any podcast service. Same with uh, How I Write. You'd find those anywhere. Where else can people find your work? Uh, So I'm on Twitter at uh, Al underscore Horner. I, yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. Like I, I write a lot for the BBC and The Guardian and Empire Magazine, which is yeah, a, a big kind of UK, European film mag. Um, I also have a 10-part uh, BBC radio series starting in August, um, which I'm, yeah, I, can't, can't, I don't know the degree to which I can um, reveal what it's about now, but like it's, uh, it's really exciting. And I've been, yeah, working on that for a long time. So I'm excited for that to see the light of day. Um, but yeah, otherwise, just on a day-to-day level, you can find me on Twitter. Um, you can also follow Script Apart uh on all the kind of usual platforms and uh yeah find us on social at script part we're back with season three next week i think it is yeah i'm, I'm working out the dates but yeah we're, we're back incredibly soon i don't know when this episode of, of uh of force five airs but um it, it, it's quite possible that by the time this comes out script part season three will be here which um we've got some really great guests for so uh yeah tune in Awesome. Can't wait. You'll find links to all this stuff in the show notes. And I'm excited for what you have on tap coming up this summer. That's really exciting. Uh, Al Horner, thanks so much for coming on. Just a, a fantastic topic and a fantastic chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's been an absolute blast. It's also fully the next day for you. We started <laughs> this on Tuesday. It is now Wednesday. Please go to bed, sir. What movies featured your favorite unraveling realities? 
let me and Al know on social media. Hit me up at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the next show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell your friends to listen as well. Tell them to become list nerds with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Benger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane. Go watch some movies about unraveling realities. Force 5.